0: Hi, I'm David Rhodes, and welcome to the In the Books podcast. If you've been around the fire service any length of time, you recognize the name Buddy Martinet, especially if you've done anything with technical rescue in the last 30 years. He started at age 15 as a volunteer and then spent 25 years working through the ranks with the Virginia Beach Fire Department, heavily involved in FEMA USAR teams, responding to some very notable incidents, including the Murrah Federal Building bombing, and OKC, and the Pentagon terrorist attack on 9-11. Buddy was a founding member of Spec Rescue International. He retired as the Wilmington, North Carolina Fire Chief, served as a county administrator in Hanover County, Virginia, and chief of the Lynchburg, Virginia Fire Department. He's taught at FDIC for years. Although I've not had the opportunity to work with him directly, I have done a lot with many people that he's closely associated with, with uh, including a couple of really good people that are no longer with us and that's Mike Brown and Dean Patrick and uh, neither of them had anything good to say about <laughs> buddy uh, in the time that I knew him so I'm not really sure why we published his book uh, obviously I'm kidding on that those guys loved you dearly uh, but both of us being retired and missing the firehouse kitchen table I thought I'd add a little bit of that just to get us started and I'm sure that in your own way, you'll be able to dish that back at the appropriate time. Um, the name of the book is Creating and Leading High-Performance Organizations. I'm excited to have the author on the podcast today, Mr. Buddy Marty, Martinette. Welcome.
1: Chief Rhodes, thank you very much for having me. I'm very much humbled to be here and looking forward to the conversation.
0: So how's it going uh, post-retirement? What you been up to?
1: I, I, I tried to retire, I guess, uh, like me most, uh, most firefighters uh, didn't didn't really have a, a pair of scissors big enough to cut the grass uh, so to keep me occupied, so to speak. So um, I decided to open up my own consulting business. And um, I did uh, PB&T consulting. And we're doing something really unique for the fire service. We're trying to stay niche in the fire service. And um, just do organizational assessments and strategic planning and leadership training for the fire service.
0: Which uh, which ties into the book heavily, uh, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it, it's a, no, no accident. You know, I had planned on <clears throat> retiring all along in September of 2023, and it had always been my desire, not necessarily to be a consultant.
0: So when people write books like these, um, obviously it's a labor of love because you're not writing a novel or something that's going to be on the new york times bestseller list even though there's that chance but uh why'd you write it well it was a
1: little bit of an accident david it was it you know i'm uh i got to tell a little bit about myself in order to to kind of get the point the gist to this is i'm 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 kind of a thinker and i like to internalize things and be sort of like a painter that starts off uh starts off on uh, making their doodling something, you know, and then they doodle here and they doodle there and they doodle here and pretty soon you look at it and you go like, oh my god, there's a there's a painting. And uh, I started writing and um, I journal with myself in order to keep my thoughts uh, in line and, and make sure that I understand the why, about how I feel some some way. And then at the end of the day it ends up being, uh, something that you can link together and create a painting with. And that's kind of what I did. So it was, it was not on, I didn't start off sitting down to just go like, you know, I'm going to write a book on this. Right. Turned that's out cool. to be a bunch of life experiences that I could string together and, and hopefully they'll benefit somebody.
0: Yeah. And that's what I noticed with the, uh a lot of the subtitles in the chapters, they were almost like they, I was going to ask you about journaling or, or if you kept notes because it looks like a lifetime of um, note taking that happened uh, in the moment, if you will. And uh, um, I know I've done that a little bit, not super disciplined to be able to to have a great body of those. But what is really interesting is when you go back and read those. You don't realize how much you forget about yeah. what you experienced. And if you if you put those details in, it starts to trigger some memories and then you can sort of sort of finish out the thought. So uh, some very catchy, uh, very catchy um, subtitles that, that are are very descriptive in, in what you're talking about. So uh, yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. I, loved- I, think
1: what, I think what's really amazing about that to add to your point is the fact that when you write something um, and you do have experiences that, that um, that cause you to have thoughts about how those things have changed right. and how you uh, perceived something to be one way. Uh, you look at it in a completely different way now. And so that was the, the aha moment for me when I was writing all this down. I would go like, well, I understand what I was trying to say here, but you know, if I'd have said that this way back then, it would not have had this, it wouldn't have resonated the same way as it does with today's, Um, experiences.
0: Yeah. That's one of my favorite sayings from one of my best friends. He'll be explaining something. Everybody's just looking at him and he goes, damn it. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Nobody else does. So, uh, so, uh, um, who's this book for, you
1: know, I, I really tried hard to make sure that these stories and the applications that are presented in the book, could be applicable to every level of the fire service. So if you're a firefighter and you want to know, okay, what makes up a great firefighter or what does a great firefighter need to do to to build up to where he can be a chief officer or be a leader in the organization, then these are the kinds of things that you would want to string together uh, to, to do, whether or not it's Understanding what your personal values are, or traits that are associated with great leadership, uh, or just understanding the organizational aspects of leadership and how high performance is built into those. So I wanted to make it applicable to every level. Um, that's kind of like the 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 uh, the front of the book or the whole cover of the book kind of shows probationary firefighter right up to chief, you know, and and uh, and I wanted. I wanted the stories to appeal to people like that. And I wanted it to be applicable to every level. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully we hit the mark and not everybody's going to like every aspect of it. Uh, the same, you know, obviously, but, um, you kind of want to have something more than just a technical book on leadership. And I didn't want it to be that. I didn't want it to just be bullets.
0: Right. Right. There's plenty of those out there. Yeah. I think that's leadership's probably the number one, uh, subject written about it's also the number one class proposals for fdic but it's it's important i mean that's why it's it's out there so yeah so you start off in in part one which is called the high performance way it's somewhat uh i would say anecdotal by telling the reader about how you grew up and you get into some pretty very personal stuff about your your family and yourself why why did you feel the need to do that
1: Well, if I if I looked back on my career and I thought, okay, where where was I successful as a leader? It it is always because it was um, some sort of relationship based um, experience. And so you'll every chief officer that's listening to this can relate back and go like, oh, that was a great leadership opportunity there. But it happened because I had a relationship with that person, uh, personal or professional. But it was a connection that you had with that other person. And um, and I and I think that's true. In organizational relationships. If you're the fire chief of an organization, if you want to be effective as a leader, you're going to have to engage that organization in a relationship with you. And so, with that as a backdrop, understanding that I wanted people to know who I was, I wanted I very intently started off the book with developing a relationship with the reader, and. You know, um, yeah, some of that's throwing your throwing your stuff out there, you know, and you go like, hey, this is who I am. And, um, you know, with all my misgivings and all the things that have happened in my life, they've added up to this. But um, I kind of wanted them to know me. Right. And uh, some people will read it and go like, you know, this is a bit of a memoir. And I go like, well, yeah, the first part is, you know, I'm going to have to apologize for that. This is about me because a lot of the things that I talk about in the book relate back to, Oh, I see why buddy says that now I can understand how he got to this place in his life where he believes this, or he thinks this is the right way to do things. So from that perspective, I guess for those people that are going to be critical, i just go like, Hey, it is what it is. And I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. But I,
0: I think it ties right into your, to your lessons and we'll get into it when we get back further in the book. But, uh, Obviously, one of the key components of leadership is trust. Yeah. One of the best ways to build trust is to expose your own vulnerability and show
1: humility and your own vulnerabilities.
0: When you rock that, uh, I guess you were probably, I don't know, maybe 16, 17 years old in the picture. Um, and, and it says, the author as a wayward teenager. Yeah. Rocking that, rocking that 60s, 70s rock and roll hair. You oh yeah. I, I could still see you there. Uh, uh, of course, no glasses and, and and way more hair. And right, uh, yeah. Uh, but one of the one of the 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 parts in that, and and I just want to read from this and then get your take on how this came about. Was how community service changed me. It says without any clear direction or social safety net, I repeatedly got into trouble. Waited for the next bad thing to happen spending my fair share of time in the office of the assistant principal, Mr. Shackelford, at Princess Anne High School in Virginia Beach, Virginia. What could have caused a wayward young man like me to turn his life around? Did he witness a fiery car crash and pull somebody from the flaming wreckage? Was it a nearby building fire where he kicked the door in and saved many workers inside? I bet he noticed a fellow student choking and jumped up to the rescue. Nope, it was... Much more dramatic than that. On that day, in front of the majestic brick school, I unceremoniously tossed an ice cream wrapper onto the ground and started walking back to school. And I truly believe it was a higher power that changed my life with a teachable moment. Mr. Shackelford's response that day would change everything about my life. He told me that I would be required to do something called community service. What the heck is community service and how am I qualified to do it? I wondered. You're kidding, right? Just suspend me and let's both get on with our lives. Yeah. I quipped, Mr. Shackelford, you could pick up trash or feed the homeless if you want, but before you can participate in any more sports at this school, you will complete eight hours of community service. I thought this punishment was the most unfair evolve for a simple littering violation so that was the big moment huh uh you know what i I think
1: yeah if you can point back to times in your life uh where uh somebody guided you in the right place that would have certainly been one of them but i've got you know um so many stories that i could tell about how that fire station that day changed my life uh you know and um kind of re re not even really understanding what is going on in your life when you're experiencing it, when you're that young, but you find that, uh, you know, now you are, uh, you're participating in something that's not about yourself. You know, it's not about what you're going to do today. It's, it's about being at that fire station and it's about being with those, uh, men and women that, uh, became mentors in my life and helped me get myself straightened out.
0: So in the book, what was the, what was the main leadership quality of Mr. Shackelford that you look back on?
1: You know, I played softball with him later in my adult life uh, as well. You know, so we maintained a friendship. And as a matter of fact, my wife and I saw him not long ago and <laughs> uh, at a, at a uh, social function Um you know, he was a, t- a prototypical, uh, he was an ops chief. If you know what an assistant principal yeah. is in high school, he was an ops chief, right? And so yeah. he's the one that kept everything straight. Um, he was a disciplinarian. Uh, but, but I think, you know what, um, from a leadership perspective, I think his greatest uh, quality was perhaps seeing things in people that they didn't see in themselves or recognizing abilities that weren't being used. And um, and maybe trying to get those people going in the right direction. And and of course, that's what discipline really is all about. Right. You know, it's what's appropriate for that particular person to get them going. Right. He he knew he knew damn well, if he suspended me again, I would probably just go surfing. So,
0: right. You know, you wouldn't get anything out of it. Yeah. And that's 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 the art part of leadership and discipline is like knowing what makes people tick mm-hmm. and know yeah. what to take away from them, whether it's your kids or, or whatever, you know, sometimes sitting in the corner does nothing. Uh, taking a cell phone away is like way more powerful than, than any time out or, or, or stay at home. Cause uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's situational, very yeah. situational. And I, I look at him as uh, you know, some of the people that that I look at as leadership mentors is, they held you accountable, but they did it in a way that made you respect them even more and not get mad at them.
1: Yeah. There's a difference between
0: punishment and discipline. Yeah. And some people were out just to punish, you know, I'm going to get him or, or what have you. But, uh, that was a, that was a great story. Well, you know, just to tie into that, to tie into that
1: conversation just a little bit, you know what I think, one of the most difficult things for firefighters, uh, you know, firefighters are pretty black and white at the end of the day, you know, and especially when it comes to something like fairness, you know, they go like, well, what's fairness? Well, fairness is like sometimes what you need to do to turn the situation around for a particular individual. So something that would be uh, something that might be discipline appropriate for one person might not be discipline appropriate for another person because that's not what would turn that person around. Right? right. Or get that person to recognize that they need to go in a different direction. But teaching those kind of leadership qualities in organizations is really, really hard. And yeah. it's culture. And it's a it's to build a culture around trust right. where the firefighters trust you as the chief, that you're doing the right thing. Uh, and then um, you trust at the end of the day when you're home, um, sitting, sitting in your chair, that they're doing the right thing out there. Business.
0: Right. Yep, I definitely agree with that 100%. So part two gets us into personal leadership, getting the ingredients right. You talk a lot about personal values, uh, specifically honesty, integrity, trust, and compassion as, as being the foundation. So elaborate on that a little
1: well, I think that values, when it comes right down to it, are, are guiding principles in people's lives. And um, I think uh, smart leaders figure out what those are very early on. Um, like, you know, we, we, we talked just a minute ago, just a second ago, really about black and white. Things are always easy when they're black and white. When they're not black and white, then you've got, um, you've got to have something to filter your decision. So it becomes like decision-making criteria. And so I always talk to leaders and say look you know one of the first things you need to do is figure out what your personal values are when you have to make a difficult decision outside of po- policy in your organization what do you use right. well you know you want to encourage people you want to encourage organizations to have organizational values to do that so that everybody's using the same criteria but at the end of the day we we all as individuals uh, live our own life by a certain set of guidelines and rules, and those become personal values. And they really do mean something. I will never, ever forget my first chief, uh, Harry Dizel, when I went to him about advice when I took my first chief's job. You know what his advice to me was? Don't ever take a job you can't afford to lose or leave. I'm sorry, leave.
0: Mm-hmm. And I said,
1: What do you mean by that, chief? And he said, at some point in time, someone will ask you to violate your personal values. And, you know, that's the time when you've got to be willing to step up and leave and right. don't get yourself in a position where you can't do that. And you know what? There was a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom in that.
0: Yeah, it's it's real easy to uh, to to get on the fire department, get out of recruit school, get that little bit of a raise, go in with. Three or four of your buddies get that apartment and go out and buy that new car and get yourself like trapped financially, so that you can't do that. And your goal, whether no matter what you're doing, should always be to try your best to maintain your independence by not yeah. doing that. That's probably a class that I know some departments do a good job with it and and bringing some guys in to talk to about retirement, about not buying the the new car, or the motorcycle right away. Yeah. But, uh, But that's a tough. It's tough when you get trapped and you feel like you have to stay.
1: I think one of the the uh, the worst things that uh, we have in our profession is shift work. You know, quite frankly, it gives them a lot of time off and they deserve a lot of time off. But what they do with that time off sometimes puts them behind the eight ball, you know, and, you know, so you take a firefighter that goes and gets a job as an electrician or, you know, whatever house framer. And then all of a sudden he's making way more money than what his lifestyle would um, would would normally allow. And then uh, the next thing you know, they're trapped in that. You know, they can't. So you get a lot of really good people that are down in the organization that are completely uh, trapped in this uh, world that they can't get out of. And then you say, well, you know, you should try to be a chief officer. And what? you know, and you know what they say to you. Well, I can't afford it. You know, right. I can't afford
0: it. Right. And then you've got the ones who, uh, just look at the bottom dollar and they'll, they'll leave, they'll, they'll leave, a, a $60,000 fire department job with full benefits and retirement because they, they can make a hundred and 110,000 over here, but they didn't realize they had a 48% benefit package. And so they they end yeah. up with a net loss of about 30 grand right? and, uh, and come back. So, yeah, I think, uh, uh, since we're on the leadership topic, that's something that the fire service could do a lot better job of is, is providing some of those resources to guys in financial planning and 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 making decisions in that end.
1: Right. There's only so many chief spots. And the higher you go, the less and less positions there are. So there's a place for everything. But I think for good leaders, uh, good leaders in organizations, if they look down really hard at the organization and try to identify the that have a skill set that will eventually help the organization move forward. Those are the kind of people you want to reach down and touch, you know, giving them uh, stretch goals and stretch responsibilities in the organization or get them something where they're giving back to the organization to help build that platform that they can springboard on later on to be a chief officer.
0: Right. Because if you don't, they're going to go somewhere else and get That's it.
1: That's exactly right. Yep.
0: All right. You talk in that section. uh, I thought this was pretty interesting about delegation says uh, when you delegate, do not just delegate to give other people things that you don't want to do. You should only delegate when it's organizationally necessary because you have more strategic or complex issues to address or the task associated with the delegation are not your role to begin with.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the big trap um, and I always um, profess that, you, you, you have operating the system people, which are the frontline firefighters, and then you have improving the system people, which are really your middle management folks. And then you have creating the future people, and those are your chief officers and your, your chief officer or your, your the, as the chief, right? And so if you teach people how to operate in those areas by a certain percentage of time, and what I mean by that is, Um, If you're a firefighter, then you operate the system, but you're operating the system 80% of the time, and that's good. I don't want firefighters that are creating the future 80% of the time, right? That's not helpful to the organization. So flip that completely up on its head and and say that what gets a lot of leaders in trouble is they spend their 80% of the time not creating the future but operating the system. And, of course, we all call those micromanagers. Everybody knows what that is. But the way the way that I try to teach time allocation is to teach people to have a respect for each person's responsibility in the organization. Right. So if the chief is supposed to be spending a lot of time creating the future and only a limited amount of time down in the organization, then just because you don't see him every time, you know, you you, you turn around, you know, you know the old you're a chief officer. So, you know, the old, well, we don't ever see the chief. Well, guess what? It's because the chief's at a meeting with the county executive. It's because he's talking to a council member. It's because he's in a planning meeting. I really, uh, profess that time allocation and getting people to understand that that goes to your, uh, I know this was a long way to get to your question and had to do with delegation, but a lot of chiefs have a hard time delegating and that's a leadership, uh, function that they have a hard time with. But what happens is if they can't let go of those things, then they can't do the things that will help them be successful in the future, which is to prepare the organization for where it's going to be. Not necessarily right now. You got good people that can help us right now. They're operating the system. They're putting out fires every day. What the firefighters want to know is where we're going tomorrow. Like what's happening next week and what's happening the week after that? I don't want to talk about the thing that's broken today. I want to talk about the thing that's broke tomorrow, and you know that's a that's a big part of what we are supposed to do as leaders.
0: I'm sure you faced this uh, on your on your way up through the ranks. I know I certainly did, and and still do in some cases today. What do you, what advice do you give? Like the the company officer level, the mid level manager that really needs to delegate some task whether it's report writing, whether it's some of the training duties or whatever it is around the station or the battalion, but they don't have the confidence in the folks that they're, they're able to delegate to. And so they just take the mindset, well, it's just going to be easier and quicker for me to do it myself. Right. That's a trap, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, You shouldn't try to give something to somebody that they're not good at because that sets them up for failure. So recognizing what people's strengths are and everybody has strengths. Everybody's strengths are just different. Right. And so when you got promoted to lieutenant or captain or whatever your first line supervisor job was, basically, they should have not pinned the lieutenant badge on you. They should have pinned the badge that said mentor and coach, because that's what you're supposed to do. And a part of mentoring and coaching is to teach people how to do your job prepare them for that next level of leadership that can only come through delegation. But, you know, if you take somebody that's not really good at report writing and give them, um, you know, say now you're responsible for report writing without propping them up with the proper help, that's just setting people up for failure. And I don't, you know, I don't, I think that we, we can be much better than that in, in the fire service.
0: Right. And if you don't have the time to sit down and teach them, then somebody's good at report writing. Yeah, group, no, absolutely. Then pair them up. Let them go fill in at that station for a little while, or bring that bring that person over. But uh, that's one of the things that uh, I see a lot of people getting trapped in, and it's like you got to invest that time in the front end to save you monumental time on the back end.
1: Well, you know, hey, so. One of our dirty little secrets in the fire service is we always enjoyed the job that we just got promoted from, right? <laughs> and so what do you do when you get there? Well, the first thing you do is revert back to doing all those things because that's what you enjoy doing and that's what you're good at. That's right. And so, you know, if you're the chief officer and you promote people, having a discussion with them about, look, I want you to know you were really good as a battalion chief, but guess what? I need a deputy chief now, Right. And this is what your responsibilities are now, because if you don't do that sort of thing, um, human nature dictates you'll revert right back to doing the things that you were comfortable with.
0: Yep. So one of the big topics, one of the hot button topics right now in the fire service obviously is, uh, mental health and, and, uh, suicide prevention, recognition, substance abuse, all of those things seem to have really, uh, taken hold and and have kind of captured captured the hot button topic um you got a section in the in there um that i thought was really good too it's, it's called happiness and yeah. it says the funny thing is about this w- word morale is that in my 45 plus years in the fire service i've never heard the term used with anything other than a negative connotation do you find that often, as a leader, people default to you or the organization as a source of their unhappiness.
1: Um. Well, I think if you're going to be the chief and you can't stomach being the tip of the tip of the spear, then you're probably in the wrong profession. Or you probably promoted up too high because some people can't uh, can't take that. You know, one of the things I love about firefighters is firefighters. And I say this in the book. I say firefighters focus on broke things you don't ever hear a firefighter fire station say, you know, chief, um, r- really good job at that thing you fixed yesterday. What you're going to hear is what they perceive to be broken today, right? And that thing that needs to be fixed. Sometimes that can manifest itself into uh, morale is bad. Well, you know, if you're sitting around a kitchen table and all you're thinking about is everything's bad, guess what? You're things are going to be bad. It's the way your brain is going to be wired. A lot of a chief's responsibility is to walk around and help people celebrate the good things that are going on. These are really good things in there, but I try to tell people, look, I'm not responsible for your personal happiness. That's an internal characteristic. That's something internal to you, whether or not you choose to be happy. Um, A lot, lot, lot of firefighters don't like hearing that, but you know what I'm I'm just like you know what my job is to run this organization and do the things we need to do to be successful and I want to try to convince you to come on that trip with me, right? Right. Um but that trip is going to have bumps and valleys and it's going to rain some, it's going to storm some, some of that's not going to be happy. You know, it's not going to be happy land.
0: Right. And obviously there are some there are some toxic environments where People are happy in their personal life and then their work makes them, makes yeah. them miserable. So that's, that's definitely part of the equation, but there are an awful lot of people out there that are just not happy, no matter what they're doing. Yeah, And uh, yeah, and, you, right. and sometimes you beat yourself up as an officer right. over that when really it's like, you know, you just got to provide the environment. What, what I hope people do is that they do the best they can to make it a great environment. Because that may be the only great environment that person has. Right. Yeah. Maybe that turns them around. Right. You know, yeah.
1: I love what Alan Brunicini always said follow an ugly kid home, you're going to find ugly parents.
0: <laughs> yep. I I'll use, I probably use that one at least once or twice a week. Yeah. That's right. Maybe the others of his. All right. Part three organizational leadership, putting it all together. Um, so you, uh, you talked about spending some time on the dark side as a, <laughs> as a county administrator. And, and I actually, uh, it was interesting. I, I started in a small suburban department, just a one station, about 20 people Then I moved, uh, consolidated with a county department that was a little bigger, but less staffing on the rigs, that kind of thing. And then went to, to the urban, you know, setting in, in Atlanta. So I had about seven years experience when I got to Atlanta and, uh, They would hire a recruit class. They would hire certain numbers early and they were kind of the grunt workers. Maybe you delivered supplies or you worked in various uh, other areas until they hired the entire, you know, 35, 40 person class. And I got very fortunate in that um, I was like one of the only ones hired in the initial group of, I think there was 12 of us that had experience uh, in the fire service. And so the fire chief pulled me in and uh he took his actual lieutenant aide and assigned him to a project uh to date myself a little bit, computerizing the fire department mm-hmm. and had me serve as his aide and so I was right in the lines then if you if you will new in the in Atlanta in the organization, but here I was the aide to the fire chief, going to meetings with the mayor um making sure the schedule was correct. And I, and he was very good. It was, it was chief David Chamberlain. He was very good about teaching me what he was doing. Yeah. He wasn't, you know, if there was some disciplinary issue, obviously I wasn't allowed to, to sit in and hear all the nitty gritty stuff. But if we were going to meet with the mayor, like he was sort of briefing me on what he was saying and telling me where the documents were. Cause you know, we had to carry the big catalog case, kind of like the football for the president. And, And we'd be sitting there in the meetings and he'd be like, uh, um, give me that, give me that, uh, study on so-and-so, so-and-so. And And I'd like, you know, I I knew he could get it, but he made me feel important, you know, and I'm sitting right there in front of the iconic mayor, you know? Uh, and, and so, uh, I got a good look behind the curtain and I kind of compared that to your, your story on the dark side. And that, that helped me a lot along the way, as I became union president, as I moved up in the ranks as officers, but it also, in a way, I wouldn't say it hurt me, but it caused me some grief because I kind of could see bs when I was being told it by somebody in the in the administration, and I might say, "Well, well, that's not right, so and so so and so. And so I was looked at by some as, well, you're against me." And it wasn't that I was against anybody. It was that I was for the organization and and wanted whatever the plan was to succeed. Right. um, So tell us a little bit about your uh, experience on the dark side.
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm fortunate. I I, I don't um, I don't take very lightly those uh, years that I spent as a county administrator because um, I, I learned a great deal about myself and other aspects of the um, organization you know the one one real uh, the realization that I had that came from my time up there is that when when fire chiefs communicate with county administrators they typically try to do it uh, or count executives they typically try to do it in the same foreign or fashion that they communicate with their own people right. and what I realized is those people don't come up in that environment okay? It's very unusual. It's not unheard of, but it's very unusual for a fire chief to become an, a, a county administrator or a city manager. And quite frankly, that's because we grow up in this relationship-based environment. It's all about caring about people and being caring about what we do, and the, you know the, those sorts of things that are ingrained in, in into our souls, right? And so a lot of these people with no disrespect intended grow up as finance officers, right? You know, they do finance, they're in a cubicle. all. They might talk to somebody next to them or they're in the planning department and they do zoning or, you know, it's just a completely different environment than ours. And so one of the really refreshing things I got to do when I was a County administrator with my boss uh, who was phenomenal County administrator uh, was to give him a perspective that he didn't see. And so he showed me a perspective that I didn't see, and then I showed him one he didn't see, and, you know, it created good rhythm. We had good organizational rhythm because of that. We didn't agree with each other all the time, but we understood each other uh, a little bit better. And I think it made him a better city manager or a county administrator, and it made me a better fire chief when I got back into the fire service.
0: Yep. They they definitely uh, also don't quite get our sense of humor. I don't think all the time either. We're always yeah. busting each other's chops and this term of endearment. You know, if we're yeah, right. on somebody really hard and they look at you like, is he mad at me? It's like, yeah. no, man, I actually like you. <laughs> but you
1: know, there's a, there's so many uh, there's so many fire chief even fire chiefs uh, definitely not middle management officers, battalion chiefs, and definitely not firefighters understand about the complexity of a a city manager's job and, you know, the balance that they have of trying to manage the political aspects of the organization with the operational aspects of the organization and trying to meld those two and trying to turn council policy into fire department practice. Um, You know, those things are very, very difficult transitions for, Chief officers to make. And quite frankly, that's, you know, as well as I do, that's one of the things that gets chiefs in trouble the quickest, right? Not understanding, not understanding that balance between what your boss needs to get done and, and your responsibilities to the organization.
0: So I'm sure you had to really think about it hard before taking that position, but, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the, it's one of the key ingredients of how you grow and learn as you challenge challenge yourself. And so that was definitely out of your comfort zone, right?
1: You know, one of my responsibilities was to um, manage uh, a part of what an elected sheriff's office was. Well, you know, if you've been anywhere in this world and there's an elective sheriff, they they're pretty powerful people. Right. And this particular one was really, really powerful. And so having a chance to work with him and Not necessarily did he work for me, but I was responsible for coordinating a lot of his department's functions in the public safety realm. And um, sometimes sometimes that was very challenging. You know, when when somebody can go like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but like, I'm going to do what I want. You know, you go like, well, I respect that, you know, have to.
0: What type of a just for context? What type of a government setup was that? I'm sure it was like a county commission. Were they a strong commission? Where the chairman was CEO or was the county administrator really the one who ran everything?
1: No, the county administrator was a CEO, and this the you know the board was an elected body, just like in normal places.
0: Um, in that section, you you got a couple of things that I want to touch on. Um, one is work to the middle of two poles. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, so if you if you maybe I don't want this to de- devolve into a, con- a conversation about our country right now, right? <laughs> but right. you know, if you if you if you kind of look at uh, people that have good organizational success, they're the kind they're the kinds of people that can rectify two sides of a situation and come to some middle ground. Because being a chief officer, a lot of times it's about negotiation compromise. You know, I realize I can't get everything done that I need to get done, but what can I get done to get a step forward going in the right direction? Or to break things down incrementally where they're not too hard on the organization to take all uh, all at one time. There are, I think when you recognize that their boss has got a, a whole different Level of responsibilities than they have, right? And sometimes we, because of our position in the organization and because of being, us being out front in the public, we can get them into a bind pretty quick, right? And, um, you know, having that good relationship with them is really important. But I think, you know, also, you know, I, I'm I have, I have been criticized, I can tell you, in my career because what people will tell you is when Buddy decides he's going to do something, it's going to happen, okay? Like, you know, if because I've done a lot of thinking, I've done a lot of analyzing, I've done a lot of researching, I've asked a lot of people about how they feel about it, and you know what, I've gathered all that information, and now guess what? Here's what we're getting ready to do time to go, right? time to put some lead downfield or however you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use. And so it doesn't mean that you didn't care about people or you didn't take what they considered to be in consideration. Sometimes that takes, that takes a lot of uh, courage. Um, And other times, you know, sometimes you just gotta, sometimes you make the wrong mistake. You just gotta go like, Hey, we went the wrong direction. We're going to correct and go the right way. Right.
0: And that's, that's the whole part about being adaptable. Is it's no different than reading the fireground. I mean, the you can have a great plan when you get there and and go through the front door and find some new information. You got to adjust. Yeah, you know, yeah. constantly, constantly adjust.
1: You know, that's really funny you mention that because I just started writing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm well. I you know we just talked about how I journal all the time and I started journaling around this notion of a hundred percent and how people, um, collect information and then, and then decide to do something. And what is the amount of information that they should need based on the circumstance to be effective? And it's really based on risk, right? Right. If it's a really risky situation well, you want to do a lot of thinking before you go, if you wait for the perfect shot, you lose the perfect shot. At some point in time, you've got to take what you reasonably think is a good shot and then move forward. And, um, You know, sometimes that's difficult because when you're the fire chief, you're the one that's got to accept responsibility for whatever comes out. Right. On the other hand, your organization can be really, really critical about you not doing something. And I will tell you this when when somebody asks, what's the real uh, paradox behind leadership is firefighters will complain about change and too much change. And there's a lot of change. But if you want to get fired from a job the quickest way, don't make any change. Yeah. That's the quickest way to get fired.
0: It's two uh, back to Brunicini, two things we hate change and the way things are.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, and you know, we were talking about the uh, work to the middle of the two poles, talking about negotiations and all, and it reminded me something that a uh, an attorney told me one time about mediation. He said if both sides walk away mad, mm-hmm. then it was a successful mediation. Yeah. Neither I one heard, of them got what they want. You yeah, ever heard, I heard the
1: same way with a bad taste in your mouth? You know, if everybody leaves with a bad taste in your mouth, you're going to probably be okay.
0: Yeah. All right, another one in there is uh, I think is very important to especially uh, our our young guys that are out there. Um I talk about it a lot in, in my leadership stuff, especially like when you get it into that lieutenant captain uh rank and the memo comes down that says effective immediately, blah, blah, blah. And it's just totally something that you just like, you can't even grasp how, how far away from reality, uh, this memo is. And, uh, you got a section in there, resist the urge to fall on the sword. Yeah. I think that's important.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think for, for firefighters, if if, if, you know, when you, when you're standing in, um, know in, in an auditorium or something, and you're talking to a group of firefighters, I think what I want, if, if there's one thing that I say, look I, there's one thing I want you to leave here with is when something happens like that, ask yourself, what do I not know about this situation? Don't necessarily assume that the person that did this was an idiot, right? Because normally they're not. And I can tell you, Ninety nine percent of every fire chief out there loves his fighters or her firefighters and are trying to do the very best job they can to make it so that they have a great experience and they have a great job. They're not out to to screw them. And sometimes that can be the perception. So if you can if you can create a culture around people understanding, um, let let me just stop and say, what don't I understand about this? And you know something, it, it really does work because I have had people, I've had firefighters actually walk in my office and go like, all right, I don't understand, and you're going to have to explain this to me. And at the end of the day, when we finished talking, what I realized is I had not communicated effectively enough in the department for them to understand. And, you know, communications is something we all struggle with. Um, too much information out there, you know, they don't know what's important, not enough information out there, you're hiding, you're creating secrets, you know, those are all the buzzwords around it. Um, but in general, you know, if you if you have an open environment where people can engage in a conversation around why these things occur and, and what you need to do to set the organization straight and go forward, then, um, you know, that's the best way. But it, but in any case, it's never good to fall on a sword. You ever get yourself in a position where you got to fall on a sword? That's um, you're you, you you you've come to you've come to the place where you can't jump to the other side, and right. so you're going to fall in the hole. You know that's just that's just right. it.
0: And, and you're no good. You're no good if you can't still be in the system and. And do what you can behind the scenes, even if it's a totally jacked up system and and you're a hundred percent right. If you fall on the sword, then you're not there anymore, or you're definitely limited in your in your uh in your sphere of influence for sure.
1: Well, um, hey, you know, as well as I do in a fire department, in, in in most in any organization, actually, you know, if you pull your hand out of a bucket of water and look at the hole that's left, that's what happens when you leave. You're gone. Like right? right. you're 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 gone. And so you fall on the sword. You think you've done the right thing. Boy, I sure showed them. Now you're out of a job and, you know, they're looking at the next guy. Right.
0: Yeah. And you're a, he- you're a hero to a handful of folks for about a week.
1: Yeah. And then, and then you're yeah, a story yeah that's
0: right all right then we've touched on this a little bit but we get into uh the last part connecting leadership and making it all work you talk about change uh and ignoring reality and how quickly you can become irrelevant um one of the sections of view from the clouds uh it reminded me of uh I, i helped start up our state uh all hazards incident management team and uh A lot of people had experience with command basically at their department level, but not in a big um, type three or higher way. And so the way this thing kicked off is everybody went to all the training classes and, uh, you know, you just get inundated with how to do an IEP and the planning P and you go through all those processes. Once we became functional and started deploying and, and down here in Georgia, most of the deployments were tornado hits, uh, a few collapses, some missing persons, that type of things. But, um, what I found right off the bat and, and I became the IC of that team was that the team as a whole, even though they were super motivated, they were all great people. Every one of them were good at what they do because of the way we had trained and because we were new into the deployment there was more focus on the IAP than there was the actual incident. And so one of the things to combat that, and I, th- I think it's just relative to that, you know, 30,000 foot view or whatever is if that's, if that's all you're looking at, you don't really have, you need that view, but you don't really have a concept of reality. It's just, so to combat that um, I would send the ops chief, I, like we would arrive and I would send the ops chief out with the local battalion chief, uh, the fire guy, whoever was out doing search and rescue or whatever, and they would stay out for a couple of hours riding around, getting a fill, talking to what the problems were. I would go meet with the county administrator, the public works director, all those folks, and I'd get what their take was and what they were do. I'm trying to narrow down what our scope is going to be, because like as a type three team, you can't you can't manage the entire county. All right. So then when the ops chief would come back, I would tell him like what the administration's view was. He would give me what, what was actually happening on the ground and they were rarely ever aligned, but then it gave me some very good Intel to go back and say, here's where I think we can help you right. and we'll take on search and rescue and clearing the roads Period. Yeah. you know? So what, what, what's, what's your take on the, you you mentioned in the book, uh, obviously, you know, the view from the clouds, but also cautioned about not getting on the street and taking a look around also.
1: Yeah. So I think what's really important and what people will realize after they read that chapter is that <clears throat> no no chief officer can spend all his time in the kitchen at the fire station. Right. You, you have other responsibilities. And and so this. This whole thing about like if you're in a plane and you're looking out the window, all you're going to see is clouds. That's all you see. Well, if you're the chief officer, you're in your office all day. All you can see is the things that are right in your purview. What's right in front of you. But the way to solve that problem is not to get is to not be in the fire station every day. The way to solve that problem is to create communications in your department where that stuff funnels back to you, where, where firefighters are not afraid to walk in and go like, chief, you got a minute, or chief, come down for lunch. We want to talk to you. Or, you know, let me tell you what's really going on with this. Or, you know, that new policy that you put in place, you know, that I understand why you thought it would work, but it doesn't work. It's not practical." If you don't create that flow coming back to you of that information, then the only way that you can solve that problem is to be in that fire station every day. And you can't do that. You won't be effective at your job. Right. So I think what, you know, around the, the whole story behind that, when people read it is that, you know, when I was when I was doing these assessments, uh, in a, you know, I'm in a Blackhawk helicopter flying through this hurricane ravaged area, you can just... You can you, you really can't see the personal aspects of what is happening in that emergency. It's more about infrastructure. You mm-hmm. can surmise that people are, are struggling, but you can't really see it until you get on the ground. And yeah. you know what? That's a valuable lesson for fire chiefs. You can't see the struggle that your firefighters are having unless you can get on the ground with them or unless you can create a pathway that they can get that information back to you so that you understand the practicality of it. Right.
0: Yep. And, and if you don't have, and again, back to communications, if you don't have that strong trust and that strong communication line, then it just never works. I, I always laughed at a couple, a couple little scenarios that, uh, that popped up all the time is uh, um, just something as simple as a broken toilet, a leaking roof, uh, that affects the guys every single day they're in that station. Absolutely, the, the captain fills out repair request, repair request after repair request after repair request. Nothing happens, and so it's it's almost a trick. After a point, it's like, well, I don't need I don't need to fill these out anymore. Or maybe even the maintenance shop calls and say, hey, we know stop filling them out. Right. Then the right person happens to work at that station that might have the right number to the right and they make the phone call. And then the captain who's documented it 400 times gets in trouble because he didn't document it yesterday.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah. Favorite thing I used to tell my chief officers is like, you know, you're out there talking about strategic plans and moving this forward and that forward. That guy out there, that girl out there in that fire station that doesn't have a mop to mop their floor, that's their problem. That's their problem today, right? Their job is to mop the floor, and you can't get them mops. You're trying to gauge them in a conversation about how to, in, to move the organization forward, and they ain't got a mop, you know.
0: Yep. All right, we get into uh, uh, your final thoughts in the uh, in the book, and uh, just a couple that that really stood out. Um, build relationships.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the whole premise of the book is. And the whole premise of my career has been around building relationships. And I want people to understand that you uh, that's the way to effectively uh, have a have a good home life, have a good work life, have a good friend life, have a good social life. uh, Building those relationships with people that interconnect us together as human beings. Um, That's really that's, that's a really powerful lesson for leaders, I think. You can't. I always think, you know, one of the most powerful things that ever happened to me was at the mirror building. And, you know, we're standing there in front of that mirror building and there's 13 floors that are all collapsed down into about 30 feet. And we're all not knowing what to do with ourselves. And Ray Downey comes over and puts his arm around my shoulder. Right. You know, and man, I just thought that comfort of having that personal relationship with that man at that particular time gave me all the confidence in the world. And I've never forgotten that, you know, I've just never forgotten it.
0: Well, that ties into the other one that I pulled is, uh, make others powerful.
1: Yeah. So if you, if you're, if you're a leader, the one thing I want you to take away from this or anything that you ever do is you are only as powerful as the power that you give away. So, you know, in, 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 the, you have got to be comfortable enough in your skin to allow people to work towards the organization's success. It can't be about you. It's got to be about the people. And the more power you give to them to do their jobs, if you empower them to do their jobs and you tell them what they want to get, the, the, what we need to get done, they're going to do it every single time, every single time. I never, no organization that I ever worked in that I go to bed at night and worry that firefighters were not going to do their jobs a right. firefighter is going to do their job and they're going to do it to the best of their ability every single time almost without exception Yep. and i think we let them down sometimes as leaders you know now we don't do our job the best we can uh, uh all the time Having their potential <laughs> yeah right exactly
0: yeah i always look at the uh Look at the unused potential in some of these organizations of guys that, like you know, you won't let them, you won't let them be in charge today, but on their off days, they're running a, you know, a business that makes a couple hundred thousand dollars with a fleet of seventy vehicles and, yeah, <laughs> and all that. But 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 we can't we can't let them sit up in the in the in the front seat today just oh, because the personality issue or whatever.
1: I can tell you one of my favorite stories in my first chief's job, you know, when they're taking you around and they're showing you everything. And, you know, here's here and this there. We get to this one place and it's got a cabinet and it's all locked up. I said, what's, what's behind there? What's locked up? That's all the medical supplies. I said, well, who's got a key? Well, I do. I got a key to get in there. So I said, well, so let me get this straight. That paramedic that you have given the responsibility of people's lives to, they 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 are saving people's lives out there unsupervised, and you won't give them a key to get into the medical cabinet. What's the disconnect there, right? You know, yeah. Um But we do we do crazy stuff like that all the time.
0: All right, here's another one. Uh, I think this one's important. Do not get mad first. Boy, yeah. that was tough, isn't it? It is
1: the matter you think you're getting ready to get, the more off you probably are, right? You know, and so if you can force yourself to step back away from it and go like, again, I'll practice what I preach. You tell the firefighters, hey, start to first think about what you don't know. That's what I want you to do anytime this stuff happens. And I think when you Uh, when you are getting ready to get mad about something, you better step back and say to yourself, wait a minute, before I show my ass here, I need to figure out what it is that I don't know about this situation.
0: Yep, for sure. For sure. And it's, you know, it's human nature to get, to get mad and, and you got to look at whether you're critiquing a fire incident or there's a personnel issue is you got to get to the okay why did you make that decision not forget about the decision for a minute and let's figure out why what brought you to that because there might be a legit reason right because you, know, you may find out something you can't uh, we were talking about the empathy is like sometimes it's easier it's easier to have the empathy down if you've been in the positions but it's very hard to have the empathy up because you have no context of of what it is so that goes back to your to your values, you know, and and about caring about folks. All right. We've been going at it about an hour. Uh, It's time to back the truck back in the station and, and wrap it up. Um, Many have heard me say, if you don't care about people, then don't get promoted. Um, As firefighters and officers, we're really in the people business. That's kind of one of my, my taglines. There's a statement in your final thoughts near the end of the book that for me was, it was only validation for the things that, that I believe and have shared about leadership, but I think it totally pulled back the curtain, showed your vulnerability, set aside the bravado and answered the question of why leadership is important without the distraction of the fire ground, the corporate tactics, without the distraction of ranks or titles, it simply answers the why that I think so many people in leadership don't get. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this. I'm going to read it right from the book. After I read it, give me your final thoughts. As you move forward in your career, always view humanity from the ground. Value each day as a gift, and in some form or fashion, give this gift to others. Forgive people. Never give up on people and love people. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that, that, that too, I think you just – what you just described is, is a relationship, right? That's what you would do. It's what you would do with your loved ones. And it's what we need to do with our, with our, with our workforce. These are, but these are, we are, we are in the luckiest profession. We're the luckiest people to be involved in this profession. We've got people that care about people. They're willing to, they're willing to give their lives up to save people that they don't even know. I mean, what kind of human beings do that? Well, they're, they're ours, right? They're the people that we work with. They're our brothers and our sisters, and they're people that we that we love. And so how we treat them is very important. And so if you, you know, if you love them, if you forgive them, if you, if you listen to them, you try to understand them, you try to mentor and coach them, communicate with them, give them all the tools that they need to do their job. Um, that's just love, man. That's just love. And then just And like Chief Brunicini, I know his name's come up a couple of times, but Chief Brunicini would just go like, just be nice. You know, at the end of the day, just be nice.
0: Yep, for sure. Well, the book is Creating and Leading High Performance Organizations by Cecil V. Buddy Martinet, Jr. Whether you're a firefighter just starting out, a fire chief with 30 years of experience, or anywhere in between, there's some real solid and valuable life and leadership lessons in here that only someone with 40-plus years of experience of making mistakes, adapting, and building successful teams and businesses could offer. Buddy, thank you for writing this, and uh, thank you for spending this hour with us and giving us some insights to your thoughts in the books. Um, You can get a copy of Creating and Leading High-Performance Organizations along with the other great fire engineering titles at fireengineeringbooks.com. It's a great cover. It's, It's Steps leading up on a path with with each of the uh, the ranks starting at firefighter moving all the way up um i think it really captured the essence of the book it's going to definitely uh have a place on my bookshelf and i hope everybody will enjoy it too so on behalf of all the great people on our books team i'm david rhodes and this one is in the books